Welcome to Happy Path Programming. I'm Bruce Eckle. I'm James Ward. All right. Well, welcome everyone. Today we have with us Victor Klang, who I was uh, able to work with long ago at TypeSafe, now Lightbend, and learned a ton from Victor. Um, I mean, a lot of the stuff that he would try to teach me was way over my head, but there was some little things that I absorbed uh, while I got to work with Victor uh, long ago and had a lot of fun getting to know him and amazing engineering offsites that we uh, got to go on and all that. But welcome, Victor. It's good to have you. Thank you, James. It's, uh, it's great to be here. I'm, uh, I'm really looking forward to talking to you, both you and, and Bruce. Uh, so uh, <laughs> yeah, good times. Good times. So we um, maybe give us an, uh, an update. You uh, recently changed jobs and are no longer at at, uh, at TypeSafe, Lightbend, Lightbend, whatever the name is now. Um, what are you up to now? So now I work at a company called Cinch, and it's not super well known amongst developers, but it's actually one of the, the world's, world's largest uh, or leading companies around communications and communication platform as a service. So it's uh, super exciting. Um, nice. And yeah, it's, of course, I, I was for a very long time, I was at, at TypeSafe slash Lightbend. So it's, it's definitely a, a change of scenery and uh, yeah. Some new, some new challenges. What are you doing at Cinch? So I'm a director of engineering, and I've been focusing quite a bit on developer experience. So I think that is, I mean, ultimately, if you think about it, it doesn't really matter how good something is in terms of technology and the effective, et cetera, if people can't really use it or the intended yeah. audience can't really use it. And I think- Reaching to the choir, man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We, so, uh... A woman I worked with at, at Google, who's now at Amazon, um, Yana, she tweeted something recently where she's like, anytime somebody says developer experience doesn't matter, I, I mention how uh, MongoDB essentially has made billions of dollars off of having a better developer experience than the alternatives. And I'm like, that's a really good point. Like people tend to think that developer experience is something, you know, man, we do, that doesn't matter. But there are, I think, some really good examples of how developer experience has been a core differentiator. I Heroku would is another one. give you the example of the entire Python ecosystem. Yeah. Because that's all about developer experience from day one. Yeah. Yeah. And has now uh, made Python maybe the most used programming platform in the world. So which that was never their goal. Their goal was just to have a great developer experience. Yeah. Well, that's cool that you get to spend time thinking about developer experience and how to make it better for for uh, your your folks. Um, so, are you doing? Are you still doing any Scala stuff? Uh, only in my spare time. I, okay. I I've been sort of after after a very long time doing the same thing. You you want to have a change of perspective and and definitely sort of expand your horizons. And what, what I think is interesting with the developer experience parts is that if you work in a technology company, you have both internal developer experience and external developer experience. So yeah. if we are developers building things, then our developer experience also matters. So I think it's, it's just one of those things and I see it as a bit of if you do physical product work, like you create a, a new car or a bike or whatever it might be, your product design is 
usually at the very sort of front. Like right. this is the, the, the experience of the product is super important. Uh, I've, but I heard once about how much engineering resources go into the uh, in a car. You mentioned cars. So I'm thinking of cars. Uh, into the door closing experience like when you close your door like you want it to be like like make the right sound and have the right feel and like the amount of engineering resources that just go into how a door closes is just amazing well and a bicycle the experience the the device is the experience it's all you know it's like there's nothing yeah. What else is there? What else is there? Yeah. 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 Whereas I guess they can say, oh, well, as long as they can figure out how to make it work, you know, it doesn't really matter if it's, I don't know, but, but I've seen the most successful libraries be the ones that have this really easy onboarding access experience. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's kind of amazing. I think it's because we go, well, we're trying to build something. So if the tools are a little wonky, the end user customer doesn't see that. So it doesn't matter. But and and we were talking about, um, you know, we were we were talking to the vibe manager. Oh, yeah. And she to Sharon and she was saying, oh, yeah, we think the programmers should have like in their environment, they should have a positive experience because that affects what they create. Yeah. And that it creates makes a sense culture to me. of value in, you know? Yeah. And if yeah. your company is going, well, you know, open plans are cheaper, so we'll do that. It doesn't matter what you think, how limited, Yeah. what a limited mindset that is, but yeah. it's, it's what the MBA schools are putting out. So. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, um, developer experience has generally not been something that technology companies really value and and it's unfortunate well it's harder to draw a line to profit from developer experience well and it may not be what what a company values most Uh because just culturally like um i think one of google's primary values is is solving hard technical problems Mm-hmm. which is not the same as creating a delightful experience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's it's interesting as well because you need both, right? You need to both solve a real problem, but you also need to make sure that whomever you're solving that problem for gets to use it and likes using it. <laughs> and right? likes it. Yeah. You, you can't you can't only have one. A perfect solution that nobody really wants to use or is able to use doesn't really generate any value right so it's yeah we were just discussing gradle this morning <laughs> totally separate topic has nothing to do with what we're talking about here oh uh, yeah we've got our developer experience issues with gradle oh my we? gosh yeah uh yeah build tools is one of those topics that you could probably spend uh, at least <laughs> two or three hours nonstop go, going about on because it's ultimately it's a very thankless thing right people just yeah. want it to work it to be super simple and easy and it it tries to solve a hard problem so it's yeah. there's lots of complexity that is it's this endless how much of the of the complexity should we shield from because some yeah. of it is necessary in order to actually use it in a, in a non-prescriptive way 
But yeah. on the other hand, you sort of want to make sure that people go the right way and, and get to success early. And ultimately, I think they're somewhat at odds, somewhat. Yep. And uh, yeah. Maybe that's part of the tension of, of build tools is that there's, there is a lot of factors to what the build tool is doing. You know, it's, it is a very complex space and to try to simplify the experience down to something that is easy to get started with, easy to modify, you know, it just, it just is, I think a really hard problem, oh, which is why all build tools are terrible. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's a real architectural thing and it, I think it comes down to your abstraction. How, mm. how do you understand the abstraction? You know, it's what I was talking to you about, you know, playwriting and the theme. Yeah. And I think if you can figure out what this kind of core theme slash abstraction is and have it really clear, then every part of it can support that. Yeah. But if you go in kind of willy-nilly, you end yeah. up with Gradle. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and Gradle does have some really nice things that yeah. it shields you from. The caching, the task caching stuff in Gradle is really nice. It's something you never have to think about. Caching just works really well. Like you run, you run your Gradle build. And if you've run it before, like it, even like test, uh, it knows, you know, if the tests have changed and won't rerun the tests, it doesn't do it very granularly. But, but the caching support is just awesome and it works and it's there. And they've put a lot of energy into making that something that you don't have to think about as a build uh, engineer. So there, there are some redeeming things about so it. So I but... can spend all my time trying to figure out the rest of it. Yeah. Yay. Anyway, yeah. so what approach, like what's your vision for, you know, creating a good, what do you think a good developer experience means? What's that theme? Yeah, I think it's, it's almost like the question, what is good design? And I think mm -hmm. it's, it's hard to, because it all depends on your audience. Which developers do you intend to be your target audience? I mean, that's the first thing. Is it all potential developers or is it a subset? And what kind of, I, I usually think about like the, the, the learning budget or the, the cognitive budget of getting to understand something new. And ultimately it's about finding where you can spend that budget. And, and what's the most bang for the buck in terms of what can we do so that you don't need to worry about it or learn anything new, but it's also about what is being done differently or what, where is the value provided? And I think it's, I think humans in general, we want quick feedback. We want to know early whether something works or not. And of course, if it doesn't work, which is interesting here because this is happy path programming, when you don't have a happy path, what is the uh, what's where's the directions to get back to the happy path? Mm -hmm. And yeah. I mean, we've all Once got you go the... Off the happy path. How hard is it to get back on to find to find what you need to do to get back onto the happy path? And how many Stack Overflow searches do you have to do to to get back? Yeah. One of the things that we um, have been observing about Zio is how some of it is structured so that if you're in an IDE and you say, you know, you type something and you press dot, the drop down menu will guide you, you know, so rather than going, okay, I guess I need to go to the docs and start hunting through those and see if I can find something. 
it helps like you do that. And it's IDE like, discoverability was right. was something that they thought about in their API mm-hmm. design, which was kind yeah. of novel in a way. Like, well, right, because it changes the architecture of your system to do that, and yet the effect is yeah. pretty dramatic from the standpoint. It's of the one of the reasons experience. I don't like the. Um, I don't know if it's like Haskell or what's the, or maybe it's more of a Lisp style where instead of doing like, instead of there being like member functions on things that you can call, you have to go find the thing to then, you know, the function that is not part of your member to call. And for me, discoverability in that it, it is terrible discoverability. And one of the reasons why I haven't liked that style of, of functional programming. Is, it, is that making like that style? Uh, so that makes total sense to me. And I think one of the, the principles that I try to use is you need to pick people up where they are and not where you want them to be. So, <laughs> right? That's and, so and, great. And it's, it's a simple thing, right? But if you think about it, especially if they are at their instance of customer, yeah. where do they go from there? And that's where I think stuff like uh, IntelliSense or or uh, auto suggestion for for um, operations that you can apply on that thing makes yeah. so much sense because you know where you are and what you're doing is to find your path to where you want to go and yeah. you can't go about it the other way uh, you can't sort of retrofit this the 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 end result to yeah. the path to get there yeah it has to be part of the architecture and one of the things that i observe in kind of all of our educational thinking is this fundamental unquestioned ground rule idea that, okay, everybody's starting in the same place and everybody moves at the same pace. Both of which, if you ask anybody, they'll go, well, of course that's not true. And yet all of our education is designed around that idea. And so, yeah. 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 It's one of the, issues that I've heard raised against type classes is the discoverability of them, which is kind of like that inversion of, of where things live. And, and, you know, you have to go find the thing instead of being able to follow a path to the thing that you need. Mm-hmm. So the that, challenge there is in some way you're presuming a closed world scenario. So if I add new functionality, it gets added to the, to the entirety of that thing is such that you can list everything because you know about everything. But usually when you do programming, you're plugging together pieces that were individually compiled as with libraries. So if, if you're not compiling the entire source code together at once, there is no closed world assumption because everything is small individual pieces at some point. And yeah. I think it's it's also easy that it becomes either you inject it into the global namespace, in which case you have this huge list of things that you could do, and it's really hard. To, yeah, it's it's just hard to find what you should be doing. Yeah. Or it's contextual, in which case it's difficult because you can only guess so much about what the user would like to do because it becomes code structure context rather than application context because the compiler doesn't really understand the business case right so right. yeah, yeah. It, it's a tricky problem i think extension extension functions have have given us some of the 
the a good balance in this world in that in the, in that terms because things can add functionality in a discoverable way and uh and uh, you know in kotlin and now scala 3 the extension functions have definitely changed the way that i program and discover things maybe it's not the total be all end all solution silver bullet but it seems like an, a general improvement it's funny how because they seem so trivial at first and then when you begin to see the impacts of them you just go wow these are way more amazing than i uh initially the way they initially came across yeah. it's funny how i feel like all of these things could almost be reduced to okay when we began this journey of how to program machines we were concerned about the machine and now we've been slowly taking these steps where we realize the machine isn't the limit the machine stopped being the limit a while ago and the limit is the human their psychology what they're capable of all of these things mm -hmm. and that's why we are still like in the early days of what is you know a programmer uh, experience is important and what does that even mean yeah yeah and also i think if if you look back the the initial work that programmers did was essentially creating a program where usually the programmer or someone else would provide the input and then collect the output basically so it it's it's one single process that runs from start to completion and then we went into the application era where it was more user interaction with an application and the io was going more to and from the user but i think especially over the past 10 years, we're not, we're not creating applications anymore. We're not creating programs anymore. We're creating components in, in a global network. Uh, yeah. And that changes everything because the complexity of that network is, is more than anyone can, can grasp. It's, yeah. you, you can't even begin to, um, presume that you understand what happens because it, it's impossible. So it, it just changes. It almost becomes a change from determinism to more emergent behavior. Yeah. And, right. and especially because you can't even know that the network, I mean, the network is inherently unreliable. So yeah. as we were experiencing just this morning, um, and so foundation of indeterminate. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, that has to be architected into your system. It's like, oh yeah, we can't rely on the network, of course. And we can't rely on consistent state anymore. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah. And, and, and knowledge in general, but I, what I think is interesting as well is that modern computers are distributed systems themselves. I think the, the main differentiator is that they typically fail in unison. It's, it's rare that you have a single computer that, that fails where just one core uh, doesn't work anymore or something yeah. like that. So w when it breaks, it typically breaks the entire computer. But hmm. it, it, if, if we really boil things down, it's really about communication and information. Those are the two things that we're doing. We're manipulating information via communication. That's if we boil it down. And we've added so many different layers. So I, I usually say that every layer between machine code or the, the, the CPU 
and the developer is developer experience because we've added all of those layers to make it easier for developers to keep building more powerful and more interesting things, safer, cheaper, uh, et cetera, right? Yeah. And ultimately, it's, it's about communication and information. Yeah. If you look at APIs, for instance, you have to communicate something to developers. The API communicates, right? It needs to have, as we all know, like naming is hard. Naming is really important, but not only the names, it's the semantical meaning behind the names, the shared vocabulary of when you say X, do I understand it to be the same as you do? Yeah. And I think yeah. that dissemination of knowledge is really at the core of this. One of the things that I've been encountering more and more is just the idea of um, scale, because there are things like, I mean, when you're dealing on the operating system level, you can have threads and locks. And as long as your scale is very small, it's possible to manage that. But one of the things that I think we as humans do go, oh, the answer is threads and locks. So let's just get big with that. And then we discover, it, and, and we've had it just on a different uh, perspective on that. We've, we've talked about like consensus is like, if you have three people, consensus is pretty easy in a nice efficient model, but then there's a, comes a point where consensus becomes like really a problematic and work anymore, there's yeah. a whole bunch of things that I think that I mean, probably uh, exceptions is maybe another example. It's like, oh yeah, exceptions in the small seem really nice, but when you get a whole big system working with exceptions, uh, it starts to break Model down. Breaks down, yeah. Yeah, but probably because of the the whole type checking uh, issue. Yeah. Um, well, I, I think I think those are really interesting topics, all of them. Uh, so I, I will actually pick up on the exception part because I think. When I switched from doing C and C++ programming to, to Java in the, in the early 2000s, one of the first really powerful things to me were the stack traces. No longer getting a, a core dump and having to go through that, but really it was in my console and I could work with that. And if, you, if you're lucky, or I guess depending on what you're building, usually you can infer where your problem is and probably what kind of thing it is. So I think exceptions and stack traces have, have, have solved quite a few issues. But I think the challenge there is that the error flow, or there's a presumption that the caller is responsible for maintaining the, the error case. So I, I, I usually talk about the vending machine. I, 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 I bet James has heard this one before, but ultimately, <laughs> if there's a problem with a vending machine and, and you're a customer, you're trying to buy something, it doesn't tell you, the customer, that uh, error code 45 uh, in the, uh, like the dispensing yeah. unit or whatever it could be, because ultimately, you're not empowered to do anything about it. Right. So the, the error flow or the failure flow needs to go to somebody or something which is empowered to actually do something about it. So what you would do in that case is to give a nice error message to your customer saying that, unfortunately, I'm not functioning correctly. 
there is yeah. going to be a, a, a maintenance person coming out and, and fixing me soon. Like that, 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 that would be nice. But clearly there needs to be another signal to the, to the maintainer of the vending machine. And I think what we're lacking in, in most programming languages is that distinction between ownership or responsibility and uh, exposing your, your, um, your service or, or your capabilities. Yeah. So we've coupled those things together. So if you try to write to a file, you get an exception. It's your problem. You need to fix the file thing, right? And in a in a collaborative environment, that doesn't work, right? Because the the, the file service. I mean, technically, even in an operating system, it, it services, right? The the file system is a service. Yeah, it's a service. And why aren't we treating it as a service? We're creating all of these interesting almost like little lies, <laughs> pretending that everything is self-contained and consistent and always available and everything just works. Your disk will never fill up. Well, exactly. yeah, I think it goes Your back NFS to the... Per, NFS partition is writable. I want to be on the happy path and don't bother me with all these possible... I'm not... My, my thing isn't going to fail. <laughs> And I don't want to think about that. Yeah. And I think that has, you know, the idea of failure happens is not woven in because I think so much of it was, well, you just have to write the program right so that it doesn't break and then rocket ships blow up and all kinds of things happen. But we still don't come back and look at it in terms of, okay, we can't just say, just program just program on the happy path and don't think about failure cases. And there's probably other things that we need, you know, I guess effects yeah. in general. Yeah. Any, anything that touches the outside world. It's just not part of the culture. Yeah. I mean, even when you look at exceptions, it's like, well, an exception is thrown. It's like, well, what's the core idea of exceptions? I think is the idea that you can recover well, most exceptions you can't recover from, mm -hmm. but we've got this, you know, the structure is built to say, oh yeah, it's only about recoverability. And I think that, um, you know, there's some, there's some flawed thinking there. Yeah. Well, well, also recoverability might be in the sense of, hey, the file system isn't working anymore, do something else. But in in the, in in the realistic way, there's not much else to do, right? It's right. not like yeah. we're, <laughs> we're going to have a fallback thing that's that's going to activate. Yeah, you so... call it, yeah if the network is broken and the file system is broken, like you're just activate screwed. smoke signals. Yeah, yeah, that's not going to work, right? Yeah, um, I think there's some connection here back to your vending machine where you you know the candy is not falling out and so you shake the vending machine you know and that's like your your like last recourse is like all right yes the maintenance person needs to come out and fix this but i just want my candy so let me shake that vending machine and have have the candy hopefully fall there was a joke in the most recent version of archer where the people were going Oh, you know, something's wrong with the candy machine. We have to put money in it now to get the candy out. And somebody else goes, "No, they just fixed it. Now it's working correctly." <laughs> but that that's also uh, an interesting topic, right? Because especially in 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 the area of software, compatibility is always 
very important, especially from a developer point of view. Don't you don't want to have to rewrite half of your application when you upgrade your your dependencies um, or similar, right? Mm. But on the other hand, yeah. you could argue that fixing a bug is a semantical change, so that even fixing bugs is one of those things that oh, don't yeah. do that, right? And yeah. to to connect it to your story about the vending machine, right? If, if somebody was relying on the on the feature that it just dispensed to whatever you wanted for free, so now you have a breaking change. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. It's one of my beefs with semantic versioning. Is exactly what you're saying. It's like mm-hmm. a bug fix is is a change that can dramatically uh, screw people when they upgrade. Well, and... that's why Java added the um, you know the whole. Um, packaging not not packaging but oh, uh, the module system. module system is because programmers were relying on this stuff that was supposed to be hidden but it yeah. was more uh, you know security by obscurity and the module system says no it's actually secure now because uh, you were preventing us from making any changes actually I have a question for Victor around this because I know that he um, has dealt with this so and I don't I'm diving into an area that I don't know much about but one of the module system intended changes was to like do away with sun miss unsafe or something mm-hmm. like that. Right. Uh, tell us about how like your in your world, you, this, this was a potential issue for some of the stuff you were working on. I remember, but I don't remember the details on what the, what the change was going to impact and how the conversation with Oracle went with, Hey, you can't remove that. Or hey, yeah, give us the background. On that. No. I, I think Bruce got it pretty correct there because it's it's hard to have something available but hide it uh, because somebody will find it if they have a need for it. And I think the challenge that I see, especially with things where you don't really have layering in the sense that I think your concerns are different as a library developer versus a, an application developer or somebody who who creates the the end product out of that thing. So we don't have a good separation of what kind of capabilities we have access to and what kind of tools we have access to because they're all in the same sort of namespace. And I I think it might have been better to have a layering so that you could, I'm doing a very performance important thing. I need to have access to the the lowest level things that you're able to expose. And I think that was sort of the case with, Sun Miscon Safe is because it gives you access to do things very efficiently that you don't really have. This is really like off-heap memory stuff. Off-heap memory stuff, uh, different kinds of memory barriers, uh, different kinds of atomic instructions and things like that. And much of this functionality has moved into other APIs uh, over the years. But I think going back to the the compatibility story, how do you, you can't go back and retrofit a new language version thing into an old language version thing. And how do you, what's your, what's your transition strategy? How do you, how do you make that switch? And I think ultimately I would want to try to get away from that entire situation from the beginning where you have to do things. I mean, clearly something named unsafe is, is <laughs> that's that's a warning label if anything right yeah <laughs> but on the other hand we have this challenge it's like we have one single thing that we're working with we're working within a java program 
And within that Java program, we need to have access to things that are outside of that Java or even below that Java program. And I think all of those situations are challenging because we're leaking concerns into a mm -hmm. different context where it doesn't necessarily belong. It's like so, the JVM has created this abstraction and sometimes you need the escape hatch, but carefully and thoughtfully designing the escape hatches is seems like it didn't necessarily happen. Well, it didn't happen because <laughs> it didn't have to because there was no module system. The mm. module system needed to have been there as part of the foundation of the language. Mm. But so many of things in Java were just kind of thrown in willy-nilly, thinking yeah. that they'd be fine. And then the world depends on them. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. then it's really hard to, to change. change make, but this is... Really this is... I mean, if you look at it, I mean, this is the, an example of the exact same thing we were talking about before with when you expose something to a user base, you need to make some sort of assumptions because otherwise you can't provide any value. If you have zero assumptions, there is nothing that you can provide. And the challenge is how do you make those assumptions? Because those are based in a point of time where you have certain information and then things change over the next decade and you have new information and you would make a different choice. Yeah. So it's it's about this tension between enablement and exposing power where you can't really you can't really remove a lot of the you can't provide a guided experience when you expose too much power. You don't have all the information when you make some of these decisions. Yeah. Well, and this is this is the issue of architectural decisions. It's like you need to have enough experience to be visionary about where this is going. You need to understand the theme of what's happening. And um, that requires a lot of experience. And, you know, the original Java designers didn't have enough experience to make the examples were out there. They yeah. just didn't look at them. Well, and in some cases, they were forging into totally uncharted yes. territory. Like you right. look at the work that was done in generics in Java, and that was, I don't know, maybe the second type system that Martin created or something. And I think that he was learning. And then I'll, and then he created Scala as like, okay, I'm going to try this again. And then he created Scott, uh, Dottie as like, okay, now I think I've finally like figured out the type system thing. Well, but there had been a generic, I mean, C++ had done a lot of work mm. in generics, which they chose to ignore. Interesting. And there was that point where, um, uh, you know, Gosling was told by Bill Joy, you need to put generics in now before you release the language. And Gosling said, nah. <laughs> and so we ended up with this hacked system. Yeah. So I think uh, it's also about constraints, right? Because I think all, in the early days of Java, it was lots of um, wanting to run on a constrained constrained platforms and constrained environments as well, right? And I think whenever you we have this, you, you, if you want to preserve as much information as possible uh, for as long as possible, let's say runtime generics, for instance, you want to reify them and keep them at runtime. Like clearly you need to store them somewhere and then you have larger binaries, for instance. So if your trade-off is we want to reduce the binary size of the application payload, not necessarily the VM, but the, the application payload, then you're going to make completely different trade-offs versus if you were like, we need maximum performance uh, 
desk is cheap. Uh, and I think that the challenge there is that all of these constraints and the context are lost time. Only the people that were involved uh. at that point knew when they made that call, this was what they were trading for yeah, or trading they off. They know right? the information that they had at that time. And it's very easy to look back through the lens of history and look through it with our information that we have now, but not see it how they saw it at the time. Well, that interview that I just referred to that is still up on Artima someplace, um, the, the constraint was we're in a hurry. <laughs> yeah, and so we you. ended up with a whole bunch of... Of yeah. things, it's it's and a very common a constraint in software, though. Yeah, <laughs> it is. But <laughs> ship it. You gotta ship yeah, it. Yeah, you gotta ship it because we'll lose the first mover advantage, or you know, there's yeah, whatever. The... But that all comes down to you know the myths that they create it that they teach in business school, and uh, you know, I don't know. One of the well, things that I that I uh, that I was still one of my favorite tweets was it was the one I did a while ago where I said you got to have a schedule otherwise you won't know that you're on schedule right. yeah <laughs> and uh, you know and it's just like no it's made up it's not I, I've had you know so many people tell me over the years about it, when I was writing thinking in Java there were like 400 Java books out and I had a number of people say how will you make any difference? You know, it's like, there's so many books out. It's not even worth trying to compete. And uh, well, if you work, work hard and do it right, then it doesn't matter. And it doesn't matter how long it takes. Yeah. Um, I mean, but, people argue with that, but. Absolutely. But I think you have the same thing with other fiction, right? So how how many thrillers do you, do you need or whatever i think i think ultimately it's it's about the point in time what kind of frame of reference people have today versus what they had when when the other thing came out but it's also what we've learned so far and i think there's a a misconception sometimes that we're moving in circles as an industry. We're sort of like, mm. now it's mainframe or now it's completely distributed and then it's mainframe again. And then it's, but it's not like that. It's a spiral, right? We, 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 we take something with us in terms of learning and experience from the previous thing to see, was this the missing piece that would have made that even better? And I think, I think we're better off if we don't see it as a negative to go back and revisit earlier thoughts. Because ultimately, I mean, I've learned so much and I, I can't I can't understate this. I, I've I've learned so, so, so much about about computing and, and thinking from really old research. Because it, ultimately there's no distinction between what's virtual and what's real. The only thing that exists is reality. We can't do things in computers that we can't do in reality. Ultimately, we're constrained by reality when we do virtual stuff. Sure, we could do it faster than any other means, but ultimately, we're still constrained by the same physical laws. We can't communicate faster than the speed, speed of causality, right? Yeah. yeah. And I think there's so much things that were created in a time where it might have not made sense due to other constraints like compute or CPU or architecture or disk or whatever, right? And I think there's so much things to rediscover uh, 
that we can pair with stuff that we've learned today. And I mean, one of the, the things in recent time that I'm super intrigued by is, is conflict-free replicated data types. Like how can we share information and modify information and still get it to converge when we put it together again? And using the laws of algebra. <laughs> yeah, but that's the thing, right? So, hey, if, if we can take this new idea and marry it with this older idea, what, what do we get then? Was that the missing piece? Uh, try to, uh, yeah, I, I don't, I don't think uh, novelty is good for the sense of novelty, right? Yeah. Well, and then there's this, what I keep observing is that it seems like there's this kind of bolus of common knowledge. And that's actually what we're moving forward. You know, it's like, mm-hmm. how many years ago, functional programming was still a really good idea. Like I think uh, Yahoo was built using Lisp and it worked really well. You know, it was very successful because of that. And so why didn't everybody jump on it then? It's because they hadn't developed the common knowledge, you know, or object-oriented programming. Well, it took a while before it became kind of a common knowledge thing. And I think that's a big factor of what we're dealing with because how can you introduce a new idea until a certain significant portion of people understand something hmm. already. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, there's an emergence, emergent behavior to the knowledge of, of mm-hmm. programming concepts. Because you sure. can't even find somebody to talk to about a concept. I mean, we're, we've been lucky here because we have... You know, you and Bill, I can talk to about some of these functional programming concepts and we can bounce ideas off each other. But, you know, help. How many people have access to? How many people have that ability at this point? Yeah. And so, yeah, that's all of that. Yeah. It is like. Social aspect of it. It is. Yeah. It's like this thing that that moves forward kind of slowly and there's Mm -hmm. people in the front like pulling you know, like I think the stuff we've been doing with effects is, mm-hmm. is, you know, further out there for a lot of people. But I think that with effects, effects or something like it will be a, a common pattern in five or 10 years. Well, that's what we're trying to do is bring it into the mainstream, just the concepts. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think what's interesting there as well is that you have this both inertia, but also momentum, right? It's, it's, mm. It's not something that stands still. It's something that is moving, but it still has that huge mass that you need to, it it can't move too fast because it's just so much mass. And uh, it's also experience, right? Because every time we decide to, to go with a certain piece of technology or a certain language or something like that, it's a bet, right? We're we're making a decision regarding the the, the benefit cost ratio of, of this decision. And I think whenever you go outside of your experience, your your risk factor is so much higher. And I it t- it takes somebody willing to take risks in order to push the, the, the experiences forward because ultimately I think as a species we don't we don't necessarily learn from others' experiences, right? We we learn from our own experience. So, being able to have access to these things is the most important thing. If, yeah. if I'm unsure about how does this effects thing work, 
how quickly and easily can I get that experience? What's my investment? Because if that investment is too high, then people will say, well, we have tons of stuff to do. We have deliverables, de- deliverables to push out. Let's let's wait yeah. until after Christmas. Deadline, or something. <laughs> we can't just stop the world. And, uh, you know, while you're garbage collecting this new idea into your head. Right. But but this yeah. is a per- this is a, actually a perfect segue into internal developer experience, right? Because whenever you're trying to improve your own productivity or the productivity of internal engineering, there's always this: we're super busy. We don't have time to improve our own productivity. It's it sounds great, but we have stuff to do. And I think the challenge there is that it, it's it's cumulative gain, right? So if you can optimize uh, 1%, then you have that 1% extra to use to improve the next percent. So oh, it's, it's yeah. really a, a, a cumulative effort. And I think that is not to be underestimated. Um, so it, it's just to find that small chunk of allocation to, to be able to invest that into more thing and get even more value out of it. So it shouldn't necessarily be the case that I'm unable to try any new things or learn anything new because I don't have any cycles to do anything to improve my own productivity. But the, hmm. enough productivity should have been freed up so that we can focus on improving productivity even more. Um, so it's really a, a win-win thing. You, you, you can actually get um, a lot yeah. of value out of it. It's so in your role as a director of engineering, is it hard to convince your management that spending time on increasing your developers' productivity is worthwhile? So that's actually a great question. And I think I wouldn't have taken the the job if I thought that that was going to be a challenge because I've, I've spent a lot of time in the industry. I've spent practically half my life uh, doing this professionally now. And it's just swimming against the stream is is just so exhausting over time. So you really want to align so that you're starting to swim with the stream. So I I also ended up in a place, and this is going to sound really wrong, but (laughs) at some point you, you only get very diminishing returns on maximizing your own skill or productivity because there's not that much low-hanging fruit left to optimize and i think ultimately that effort is perhaps best spent on helping others to be able to uh, to to learn new things or get new experience or or being better at at what they do so it's also one of those things of having the possibility of a bigger impact than I could do myself as a developer. Because I mean, I still sort of self-identify as a developer. I think that will never, never leave me because I enjoy it so much. But I I think it's, it's also those things where you feel like perhaps I could make a better or bigger contribution helping others than, than just uh, solve tricky problems (laughs) on my own somewhere. Um, but that's why I write books. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's interesting because I think, I guess we all have that in common, right? We're creating things where the end result or the end value is not direct end value. It's indirect 
and value of enabling others to do things that perhaps you didn't even envision that they would be doing, but they take it into a new direction or creating something based on that. Um, and it's, I think it's, you have to be able to appreciate your indirect contributions um, because I think over time, those will be your main contributions. Yeah, the leverage. And then they talk about, you know, specialization and trade. And you get so much more from that than if you just, you know, try and be your own little island. Yeah. And uh, there's this talk about sort of I shape or T shaped or like your, your competency. And if you, if you want to be just a specialist or if you want to be a generalist or, and I, I, I don't think it makes sense to, to cast it in, in that form or shape because, I mean, I've done concurrency for a very long time. I've done distributed systems for a very long time. I've, and all of this is essentially been to enable others to do things more tractably or eas yeah. more easily or cheaply or with less risk. And it's just, I mean, we have so many, so many hours Really, we have a lot of hours, and <laughs> we we can have more than one specialty. I think, um, of course, you don't need to be like the the world's foremost expert in a single topic to be to be uh, an expert on something. But yeah. I, I think the value is is about the combination, which is mm -hmm. why I mean I I read a lot, and I typically read like. First and foremost, scientific papers or, or research papers. And I read biology, physics, uh, economics, uh, philosophy, uh, computer science. And I think the, the combination of all of these things is what interests me. Finding examples of the same issues or finding uh, potential for having the same solutions spanning multiple fields, I think those are the exciting things for me. And if I were to just specialize in in one really slim sliver of 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 uh, of space, then I think I would lose a lot of the excitement of finding like, hey, what if we use the the golden angle to index this uh, circular buffer to uh, to make sure we have interesting coverage in the in the ring over time without having to coordinate those didn't didn't somebody find a connection between like raft or paxos and some biological thing biological system i feel like i read that somewhere but maybe yeah it that. does ring a bell but i mean it goes back to what i said before like there's nothing in 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 the virtual world that we couldn't do in the in the physical slash in the the real world it's all it's all the same fundamental uh laws in place so I do find that sometimes, I mean, kind of in line with what you're saying, yeah, you, you don't want to just go specialize in something and stay there. But sometimes that deep dive into a particular thing is also very enlightening as long as you don't get stuck there, as long mm -hmm. as you don't just stay there. <laughs> you, know, you come out again and now you've got that information and you can move on and maybe do another deep dive into something. Yeah, I, I know exactly what you mean. I, mean, I, I do, I do that. Like it's, a, it's a part of my, it's a part of my personality. I guess I, I just find something and then I obsess about it and and I dive super deep. I, I remember 
back when I was going to propose to my now wife, you know, you, you start to look for a, a nice wedding ring that, that, that she, she would like. And that, that's where like, I feel like somebody typical would stop and like, yeah, I found something, but I went into like, how do you grade diamonds? How do, <laughs> this is like very deep rabbit hole. I got my yeah. own like loop so I could like, it's, yeah. So I, I think there's there's a lot of interesting things that could come out of going down that rabbit hole and exploring the the depths of a topic. And as far as I know, you didn't become like a diamond trader or something because you went so deep in that rabbit hole. You you came out and you moved on to other things. Yeah. Well, and and I think I remember hearing reading something about how they there's there's like I don't know how many categories that they put people in, but they said, oh yeah, there's a category of a person who does that who like can't you know deal with something unless they do that dive and they go you want to know those people so that when you have a it's like if i go i need a diamond i'll go ask now we know, victor yeah, because exactly. victor has done the research and i know how he does that and they go you need some of those people in your your sphere Spear, yeah yeah, yeah but it, it's so it's, 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 some, some people never emerge from that they go they go all the way and they start doing their own research and and they uh they do some amazing things as well and i think yeah the the the, the challenge there is to know when to stop right and and know <laughs> what what's what's good enough and uh i think the challenge and it's about architecture right um, mm -hmm. you need to make decisions based on some information and you need to know when to stop looking for more you need to have a cutoff point saying that i think i know the the, the important bits so that i can make my call but with architecture, it's also about projecting forward. It's not about what's right just now. It's also how, do, how does this position itself to where we project to the future? And yeah. it, it's, it's definitely something that I, I think is hard to teach because I, I, can't even, I can't even explain the process. It's one of those things where you just feel like, okay, this feels right it has the right extension points it has the right shapes um it's and like how do you teach yeah. somebody to become a fortune teller like you well can, can you go to school for that the other thing is that you're doing i mean you always have to keep in mind that in the end it's still an experiment and i i feel like i saw something where they were talking about how do you know when you've covered enough ground? And some statistician looked at this and it might've been dating or something like that. And they go, all right, you know, if you have this pool of a hundred people and if you get to like, I don't know what it is, like a third or something, they go, that's when you're in a pretty good situation. Of course, it could be the next winner. It could be the hundredth person. But by the time you hit that point, you're going, okay, I have a pretty good idea what's going on here and I can make an actual decision. There's a, a really classical thing. Uh, I don't know if it's the official name for it, but I usually call it explore versus exploit trade-off where oh. you, you have... Either a good example is like any strategy game, you typically have a fog of war that is outside of your known territory and you have a set of resources there. So you have a decision. Am I going to use all of the resources I have to build whatever I want to build? And when do I decide to explore beyond 
the known space in order to find more resources. And it's like that in nature as well. As an organism, you have your known sources of nutrients, but at some point you also need to explore to find new sources of nutrients before you run out of nutrients so that you can continue to persist, right? And I think it's it's woven into this thing as well, where this information, is this enough for me to get to the next level? Or am I sort of painting myself into a corner with this decision so that when this doesn't pan out, it's game over. There is no, there's no way to go. And that, I'm not sure that there is a, a winning strategy. It's, I think there's a lot of luck involved in this as well. Yeah. Um, there's, um, well, and then you can kind of throw in the, the black swan effect of, Oh, and then you you might think everything's fine. And then this thing that you thought, oh, that'll never happen. And if it does, it's not that big of a deal. And it can just completely destroy everything. I just saw something where they were saying, well, every, every now and then the sun emits this big um, solar flare bunch of, well it's even more than a solar flare it's like this it, it throws like this a plasma ball yeah basically <laughs> that's what it is and you're going oh well that's probably not something that happened very often well the last time it happened th- it was in the beginning of the telegraph age and all and and all these telegraphs got like burned out and we're talking those are wires those oh, are wow. not traces and they're going it could happen, you know. Here's the pers- here's the probability it might happen in the next ten years, and it's like, I don't know, ten or twelve percent. And it's like, oh my gosh! Now we're talking about bad science fiction movies where it's everything's breaking down, and it's, it's wow, yeah, yeah. It's like, you know, what's it going to do to all of our devices? But we are not treating that as an important thing. We're trying to move forward. You know, we're trying to forage for new stuff as fast as possible we're not going oh maybe we need to spend a little effort on defending about things that the plasma ball that yeah yeah or the infectious virus that might (laughs) no that's not going to happen again for another hundred years (laughs) Well, well that's the thing so so especially with the especially with things that are never a hundred percent, like there's, there's no way to have 100% certainty. There's no way to have 100% security. There's no way to have, there's always a cutoff point where you essentially say beyond this here be dragons. Like if, if this happens, uh, we, we don't care about that because that's a much worse scenario than, than, than we're willing to tackle. And I think it's especially important when it comes to, um, because let's say that you want to have a, a highly available system. Is, is, is there like a, a, a non-stated uh, requirement or assumption that we, it, it, we don't care uh, if there's an issue with the planet? Or right. like, like, yeah. Where do you, you draw the boundaries of of the issues that can make your highly available system no longer available? Exactly. So it's it's sort of one of, one of those things. So whenever you, you like, I'm allergic to the notion of providing guarantees uh, because, because ultimately we know it cannot be a hundred percent. Yeah. By definition, it cannot be a hundred percent. So yeah. it, it's it's all about risk management, really, mm. and. 
I think it's it's more healthy to look at it from a risk management perspective rather than the other way around, where it's a safety management perspective. Um, so it, it's better me. to I, to I use your um, effectively once delivery thing all of the time. What like, is that? In many of my presentations, I talk about effectively once delivery. I'll let Victor uh, coined the term, so I'll let him describe okay. it effectively once. Yeah, I, I don't know if I was first, but at least I I, I, I popularized. tried. To, I, I popularized it because th- there's this notion of exactly once delivery that everybody's uh, aiming for, and and everybody it's, dreams of exactly once. I, I don't know what that means in like messaging systems. So if you oh. in in any any situation where you where you're sending a message to something, um, the the desire in a lot of cases is that you will only ever process, receive and process that message once. But it's a fantasy. Well, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and the thing is that, especially when it comes to reasoning about uh, risk in programs, we, we don't have many tools for that at all. Um, so in your code, and this is a, a good example. For instance, if you have an IoT system where you have a sensor that sends temperature data to some backend that wants to process that data, when you receive that temperature reading A, how do you know that it's correct? Like, what what is the um, context in which it exists? So there, there's been numerous reports of people having their uh, routers overheat in their closet, uh, for instance. So if you have a temperature sensor there, it only reads the temperature of its very close proximity part. So it doesn't say what the room temperature is like. It just says very close to this router, it's this temperature. But it also doesn't say what's the uh, accuracy of this temperature sensor. So if you, as the backend system, get a temperature of, let's say, uh, zero centigrade, so it's about the, the point of freezing, if that temperature sensor could be off by 10 degrees, how would you know? That's not even passed to you as a part of that What's saying that. Sorry, here's yeah. what I think, but here's also how wrong I could be. We, we almost never have that information. Yeah. And that information compounds. So if you have numerous different sensors that might have different hardware because they're different generations, uh, or they're sourced from different companies, and you're aggregating all that information, then suddenly your variance could be very, very high. And so, but we don't have waste. We, we want to reason about the absolutes, but our 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 context is lost. And I think we spend so much time trying to regain that context in every single layer of software that we create because we're throwing away information. And we're trying to, for instance, take timeouts as an example. Every single timeout that I see in code is like one second, three seconds, or five seconds, or 60 seconds. Right. Uh, Why are these like, the valid values? Exactly. <laughs> it's the human psychology. Exactly. But what we should have instead is expectation, uh, ex- expectation management to have that propagate in our chain. So I'm interested in that, but only if you can give it to me within X amount of time. Otherwise, I don't need it. It's out of date or I can't do anything with it. 
and, and don't you, even bother sending it. <laughs> right. Exactly. And then we could derive all the intermediate timeouts based on that, because we know how much time we've spent and we know how much time remains. And we and, wouldn't bog down the network with, with meaningless data. Yeah. yeah, or processing, right? You do a lot of processing right. where the, the, the client is no longer actively looking for that answer anymore. So I think we could... <laughs> avoid a lot of needless work if we just had the right means to reason about this and propagate the right information so that we can actually make local decisions in, a, in an informed manner. That almost sounds like it could be another dimension of the reactive manifesto, not just, are you giving me too much stuff? Are you giving, you know, to be able to push back and go, stop, I'm not interested in this Back stuff pressure anymore. based on based on value yeah, value Back yeah. pressure based on value yeah. absolutely I mean one of the biggest things about the reactive manifesto is the responsiveness part that's what we're trying to achieve right and I usually tell people it doesn't matter how correct your thing is if the answer is too late like I, I don't care if you have a machine that gives you the the answer to the meaning of life it will if it will only give you that at the end of the universe like it, it, <laughs> it, 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 like it, it will not provide any value. So I think yeah. ultimately the, the, the timeliness of functionality is a very core concern, which is almost always uh, communicated out of band mm -hmm. via things like uh, uh, SLAs, etc., where you want to have that in band so that you can act on that information. Yeah, it's like why don't our programming models have SLAs like built into the programming model instead of being something that we observe externally? It occurs to me that our single return value model may be responsible for that. It's just like, mm -hmm. oh well, here's the here's the answer. Not, oh, but the other stuff, there's that's too much. We can't put it all in, and so you know maybe this is the idea of. Like as we move more to thinking monadically, we'll go, oh yeah, I'll give you the answer and I'll give you things about context, the value, yeah. the context of the answer. Absolutely. And, and if you think about it, I, I recently thought about the, the exact same thing where almost all evaluation destroys information. So if you think something as, as, as simple as addition, for instance, where you have an X and a Y and you're returning a, a Z, and then when you only have the said, there's no way to go back. You've lost the X and Y, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's compression. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But yeah, it's all, all even addition is, an, is a form of abstraction. Yeah. 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 So so the thing there is how how can we because since we throw so much information away, I mean if if you think about it, even a, a transistor is ultimately analog. But it's it's a specific voltage cutoff point that tells whether it's it's off or on, and then we we take something analog, and then we make it into digital, and then we do the exact same kinds of things at every single layer above it, where we're we're throwing information, information away, away, we're yeah. throwing information away, we're throwing information away, and it's not uncommon to be in a situation where we need to start, okay, uh, so now we have this information, and now we, we need to. Start start to extrapolate or, or, or try to figure out what the context around this value is. And going back to what Bruce said with the single return value, it's, it's one of those things where if everything only creates one output but can 
have almost an infinite number of inputs, then it's by definition a compression algorithm, right? It's it's yeah. it's one thing goes out mm. all the time. Yeah, always losing information. Hmm. Wow. Well. Uh, okay, back real quick to what's what is uh, uh, effectively once delivery. Yeah, oh, right. right. Sorry, I, I derailed that one. Uh, so no, that's, no, no, it's all really mind blowing <laughs> stuff, mind expanding so, stuff. So usually you have two choices, right? So e or you have, yeah, you have two choices. Either you send at most once, so you send it once, and if you're not sure, then you don't try again. Right. I, I tried it once. It didn't. It might have worked. It didn't work. I don't know. But I'm not gonna try it. Try again. So you'll you'll get that message at most once. But the thing is that the alternative there is to resend the message. But the question then: When do you stop sending that sim single message? So you need, in order for at at least once to work, you need to have a back channel of acting or some way of saying, "Hey, I got it." Or I'm done. Yeah, yeah. You can continue yeah. with the rest, and and typically yeah. you have some sort of ordering requirement as well, right? Where 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 messages are not completely disjoint, and you need to reassemble them in some form as well. But you can always do that with sequencing and having a sequence number on your on your messages, and then have the the recipient sort of re reorder them at the recipient point. But the thing is, you need to remember what you've seen, right? You, you need to have some form of memory. Otherwise, if you crash and come up again, how do you know where you, where you Wait, were and yeah. what yeah. you've already seen or not? So effectively, once is essentially at least once delivery, but with deduplication at the receiving end. So and of, of course, as well, idempotent operations so that you can apply the same thing multiple times and I still mean, get this. You happen to process it more than yeah. once. doesn't matter. You've just done the same so thing So this again. is kind of a solution to the Byzantine general problem? Yeah, it's, it's kind of. <laughs> it's kind of a solution. Yeah. What's the Byzantine general? It's problem? basically, okay, you got two generals. There's a war going on in between. You want to send a messenger from one general to another. How do you know it's gotten through? Well, they send a uh, a response that says got through. How do you know that gets through? You know, just yeah, on and on okay. and on. Yeah. So, so and, and and the thing is, with the Byzantine generals problem, I don't think that there is a a one hundred percent solution because I think ultimately the problem is not one hundred percent solvable, and you're not taking into consideration the fact where one general just mysteriously dies uh, just before their uh, attempted attack anyway. Like there's so many variables that you're not controlling in this environment. So the question is really, what's your um, desirable uh, level of confidence in the success of your... <laughs> yeah. Well, I think what it actually is saying, it's like, well, no, we need to look at the problem differently. What this is exposing is that luck and probability are a huge factor and we're trying to go no but i want a digital solution it's like no uh, luck and probability yeah yeah we how, don't much, wanna... how much risk are you willing to assume mm. and that's the that drives your your solution well but even acknowledging i mean there's this decision this this woman uh, i can't remember her name but she's writing books on decision making and like the first exercise that you do is you go well 
you know, think of a good decision that you made, think of a bad decision that you've made. Now you can reverse the outcomes and you'll decide, oh, well, they, they were actually those, that wasn't a good decision. That was, and, and the point is, oh, but luck was a factor and you weren't thinking about that when you said this is a good decision or this is a bad, we, we want to, we want to eliminate that. Our psychology yeah. wants to eliminate that and go, no, I know how to make good decisions. Huh. It's interesting as well with the Byzantine generals because there's a presumption of, of uh, knowledge there. So the knowledge is that the generals uh, understand that they will win if they uh, coordinate their attack. <laughs> but how do they know that? They don't know what whatever they're <laughs> yeah. attacking doesn't have some new fangled uh, <laughs> weapon so or whatever yeah. or, or new kinds of fortifications that they're not aware of. So ultimately you have to draw the boundaries again like where do we stop what's what beyond is our control? enough information that's the thing if they can have perfect information back and forth then they can coordinate and if you know somebody goes oh there's a new weapon well the information's immediately there but then at some point it's like well there's a there's a you know information can only flow so fast oh somebody was just saying um, there were so many stories that don't work anymore because of cell phones. You know, people, people. Oh, here's a here's a drama, here's a story, or whatever. And it depends on the slowness of information transfer. And now that we have cell phones, people would go, "Well, that doesn't make that sense doesn't at make all." Sense, yeah, that, that's huh. where they're never good coverage when. <laughs> Whenever you're in a tricky spot you solve, in a movie. Yeah. You solve that problem is you just go, oh, I don't have any coverage here now. Yeah. Now the information flow is no longer perfect. Yeah. Um, okay, one last technical question before we wrap up. So you, um, you're really the, the creator of Reactive Streams, and it's been a huge thing for the industry, and, and I've benefited a ton from it, and thank you for that. But um, I've ha I have gotten... When I talk about reactive, I've gotten a question about how Java. Um, what's the new fiber thing going into the JVM in oh, uh, the future? The Project Loom. Loom. Project Loom. Thank you. People have asked me how Loom will impact reactive, and and I don't know. So, what's your take on that? That's a that's a great question. So, first and foremost, I think reactive streams was a huge effort by a lot of people. So, I, I definitely yeah. don't oh, want to sure. take that credit, uh, but. <laughs> You really I, let it, and we appreciate the, your leading, but it was certainly a lot of yeah, people. Yeah, but the, the, what I think, what yeah, so I, I think we did something great there, and I think that abstraction has has seen a lot of value and a lot of use. Um, I think with Project Loom, it's it's hard because one end of the spectrum, you have the, the interoperability aspects of it. So... What I like about reactive streams is the ease in which it, it composes across the network boundary, where you have different systems communicating together and you have a channel. You can, for instance, you can piggyback on top of um, TCP flow control, for instance, and, and have that back pressure pressure throughout your entire system. So even at the TCP level, yeah. 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 And of course, it's whenever you have something Turing complete with IO, you can do anything that is computable. So you can definitely do a lot of these things in other abstractions as well. So it, it's, it's, I think it boils down into the, what's the intended audience? What are they trying to do? Um, 
the challenges that I see with Loom now, and I, I, it might have changed since since I had a look at it last, but it's still backed by a thread pool with everything that comes with thread pools. And it's always hard to look into something that calls a native library and know whether it blocks or not. So whenever you call into into the kernel or something like that, it's hard for the uh, the scheduler to know that beforehand. So you always have this challenge of what's blocking and what's not blocking. And I think in, in some ways you have this sort of tug of war between cooperative scheduling and preemptive scheduling at many different layers in the computer, you have it in the CPU itself with speculative execution, hyper-threading, all of those things. And then you have the operating system, you have operating system threads, and you have green threads on top of that, and multiple levels of, of interacting cooperative versus preemptive scheduling. And I think the the hard thing with something like uh, with Loom is you never really know what your stack space usage is, uh, because since something can park at any point in its own stack space. And if you have millions of them, how do you reason about what your max stack space usage is going to be? It's really hard. That's why I like the actor model because it always parks at zero. So whenever you're done with your message, you go back and park at zero. So you know exactly like if I don't have any messages running at this point, everything is parked at zero. Yeah. So that, that it's easier for me to reason about anyway. And um, I think as well with, there are multiple things. There's the mechanics, the runtime aspects of it. I think it's nice to be able to do this sort of soft parking where you're not really parking the, the OS thread, uh, but it's also the programming model. So am I programming with blocking queues, for instance? Is that my, is that my communication means between my fibers or, or my my virtual threads. Who's responsible for this blocking queue? Who who maintains its life cycle? How do you close a blocking queue? What's the there's there's so much around the ergonomics of the programming model that I think is still a bit in the air or so. I d I haven't yeah. seen that part being addressed. But I'm I'm very big in sort of the, the non-blocking async try to to uh, because it's it's really about being as efficient as possible with your with your resources and yeah. currently CPU resources are scarce compared to memory or or disk and it, it, you like I've seen things like you you get uh, a five-fold reduction in the number of servers when you run a completely async and non-blocking thing because ultimately you have more resources available to do yeah. things instead of waiting for things. to manage your resources, yeah. Exactly. And I think as well with having programming with threads, especially if you're waiting for something. If you, th if you take something in Java, for instance, uh, synchronized as a keyword, <laughs> You're synchronizing on top of an object, but you're not specifying any timeout, right? Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, whenever you have... Well, and usually synchronized is used as like just this big hammer that you just whack a whole chunk of stuff with. You know, not the actual part that needs to be synchronized, but the whole freaking thing. And it's, yeah, just like, let's kill your performance with this one little keyword. I really yeah, but... like the term parking. It's it's I like it better than... 
the alternatives that I've seen. Yeah, yeah. Par- and and the thing is, whenever you have unbounded time parking, it, it's a recipe for for weird behavior at one time uh, because it's just like I think as a property of a component, it's um, its distribution of its responsiveness. It's um, how you can depend on it. If if you can, if you know that a component has a tight interval of possible um, uh, time it takes to to actually deliver its result, it becomes more predictable. And the more predictable it becomes, the easier it is to use. Because if you have an endpoint that takes between one millisecond and ten minutes to return a value, you're going to have to make some really, really. Uh, weird things in order to make sure that this runs under all possible permutations of, of, yeah. of retu- return times. But if you have something which is really tightly scoped around one second, at least you know what to work with. Yeah. yeah. The thing is, as soon as you start messing with concurrency, you're talking about time. You're going, the reason that we're doing this is we have issues around time. So pretending that time, time exist. isn't a factor when you're doing your parking is like, oh, I think we have a bad abstraction if we're not taking that into account. Yeah, in these cases, yeah. Yeah, imagine for instance that uh, we we take this into reality, and it's really a parking spot, and somebody's putting their car there, and you don't have a maximum time that somebody's allowed to park somewhere. When do you t- tow that car? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> eventually, your parking lot is just full. Mm-hmm. Is what. And you can't do anything. Yeah. 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 Yeah, It's a good metaphor. Uh Yeah. That's I, and I like your point about loom, not really addressing the back pressure. Uh, Like there, there is no construct of back pressure in, in loom or fibers. And so so that's a, that's a critical piece. Yeah, sorry. You would have to go through like a blocking queue, for instance, where you try to pull something off of it, and if it's not available, you'll you'll wait. But then you're into this. Okay, so now I try to pull something out of the blocking queue. Uh, how long do I wait for that to come out of the blocking queue? And isn't there anything that I could be doing to provide value while I'm waiting for this thing to be available? And also, yeah. as I said before, like the shutdown signal, how do you, how do how does the producer in that case send the signal that, hey, we're all out of items. You're not going to get anything through this blocking queue anymore. Uh, close up shop. Uh, we're done here. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You, you would have to layer that on top and, and have some yeah. cancellation token that you would have to pull out and compare against and say, OK, we're done here. But then it's not clear either who is responsible for throwing away the blocking queue. Like, do I need to to null that out, or like, yeah. is it going to get reused for someone else? Or so I think something that was interesting about Rust, for instance, is the um, the notion of ownership and tracking ownership. But I think something that is missing is the tracking of responsibility. And I think ownership and responsibility doesn't necessarily need to be the same thing because responsibility can be more granular than ownership. So for instance, with the work that I did with uh, futures and promises in Scala was that a promise is a permission to write a single value and a future was the permission to read a single value. And Potentially if, more than once. Yeah, potentially more than Zero. once, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and if you couple those into the same thing, 
you cannot differentiate between the different permissions anymore. There's only the ownership really of the single thing. Really good example thing. of the difference between ownership and responsibility. Yeah. Yeah, and I've used futures libraries that combine those two, and it's like after using the Scala futures model, I'm like, oh, absolutely, this is the right way to like have the a difference between ownership and responsibility when it comes to the the right side and the read side. Um, yeah, it, it becomes very obvious that futures APIs that don't separate out those responsibilities are definitely doing it wrong and making things really painful. <laughs> Yeah, because ultimately, if you have a reference to something that encompasses both, how do you know what you're supposed to, or what you're allowed to do with it? Do yeah. I have like unfettered access to do whatever I want, or am I intended to preserve something? Is there something that I shouldn't be doing? And when I hand it off to something else, what parts of that can I hand off and what parts can I retain? And I think tracking the, uh, the responsibilities the permissions and the ownership would be an interesting thing. And of course, I mean, that puts a lot of onus on the developer experience designers in that case. Like, how do we do that in a, in a way that, that makes it easy and tractable and gives great error messages? And like, there's so much stuff that we're not necessarily accounting for in our programming that if we were to account for them, what kinds of things could we do differently? How much better would it be? Um, what kinds of, of, of cheap, cheaper operations could we have? Because ultimately it's about retaining that information and making it available to a compiler, a runtime, et cetera, so that we could make things uh, faster or cheaper or easier to maintain. Yeah. Cool. Well, thanks. That was... Yeah, mind expanding for sure. Yep. <laughs> All right. Well, my mind is full for the moment. <laughs> my buffer is full. I'm going to back pressure the conversation and and um, <laughs> really appreciate you spending your evening with us, Victor. It's so fun yep. to see you and and uh, and get some of your wisdom on on so many different topics. So. Yeah. I was not expecting all of this. <laughs> I, never, I never even got to the questions that I was, you know, my baseline questions I was going to ask. That's, which is fine. So I, fun. This is no, I, I love this. Um, it, it's been amazing to talk to you too, and uh, I, I thoroughly enjoy this. So I'll, I'll, I'll let you have a nice weekend. <laughs> Decompress a bit. You too. Thanks. All right. <laughs> Thank you, Victor. Cheers. <laughs>